The following sermon by Pastor Rick Holland is brought to you by Mission Road Bible Church. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com. Well, take your Bibles and go to the book of 1 John and find your way to John chapter 13. John chapter 13. We're working our way through this section from John 13 through John 17, which is the upper room discourse. It's a conversation that Jesus begins with his disciples and moves from the upper room all the way to Gethsemane where he's discussing the ministry he had with them and laying the foundation for the ministry he's going to have with them when he's not there anymore, when he's invisible, when he's ascended, when he's back in heaven. How do you live with an invisible Savior? That's what Jesus' primary uh, message is to his men during these chapters. And it's also very important for us to eavesdrop on that conversation because the same principles he outlines for them in, ha- in terms of how to live life with him without him, with an invisible Savior, apply to us as well. We found our way to the middle of the 13th chapter in verses 31 and 32, and we'll only have time to address these two verses this morning. Follow along as I read. John writes, Therefore, when he, that is Judas, when Judas had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. And if God is glorified, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him immediately. The Divine Comedy by Dante was penned in the 14th century and stands as one of the most epic pieces of literature ever penned. In fact, it's hard to find anyone who has been through high school who hasn't read some part of Dante's Divine Comedy. It's an allegorical uh, uh, story that really chronicles the journey of Dante through what's basically the medieval concept of hell. He was guided by the Roman poet Virgil through this series of um, levels that he, he explored in hell. There were nine different levels. Now, let me be quick to say that what he describes in the, the Divine Comedy, which ends in the, the um, levels of hell called the Inferno, what he describes is an allegory. It's It's fantasy. It's not biblical. In this poem, as I said, hell is described and depicted as nine circles. Suffering increases at every level. It's within the earth itself, and allegorically, it represents the journey of the soul towards God with the inferno, the final uh, part of hell, describing the recognition of sin that everyone must see. And the, the idea is if you see what punishment sin uh, draws from God himself, then it should put the fear of God in you to live otherwise. Well, throughout these nine circles, sin is surveyed with the final, most damning and horrific sin reserved for the deepest part and pit of hell. And it might surprise you to know that that sin that Dante identifies as the worst of all sins is the sin of treachery. In that deepest part of hell, Dante sees and imagines Satan himself as the chief punished and also the one who in his punishment gives punishment. 
In graphic effigy, we also see in that deepest part of hell, Judas. Judas is being given the most horrifying torture of any traitor. If you've seen the pictures or read the stories, you know that Judas is seen as forever for all eternity, having his head inside Satan, who is a monster, and inside his mouth, and it's being gnawed for all eternity while Satan is constantly gnawing at his back, scratching at his back with, with very thick, sharp claws forever. Now, Dante's Inferno is a fictional allegory. But I would suggest that the identification of Judas as sinning in a way that's as bad as it gets is pretty close to the truth. In our last study in John 13, we heard John describe how Jesus predicts his coming betrayal. He has these 12 men in the, in the room. It's very intimate, close quarters, that U-shaped table, that, which would have allowed the open uh, part for a servant to come in and uh, give, give the food out. This was a, a, a table that was about a foot and a half or so off the ground. There were large stuffed pillows all around the table. They would recline at the table, thus the need for a foot washing because your feet would be all around each other. During that meal, during the Last Supper, Jesus predicts and identifies the one who is going to turn him in, rat him out, betray him. We find ourselves in the middle of that conversation in John 13, and it is among the most important in all of history. It's Thursday night. Tomorrow was the day before the Passover, the day on which our Lord would be crucified. It was the most drama-packed meeting that Jesus had with these men in the entire three years he spent with them. It's not an overstatement to say everything he taught them led up to this moment where he was preparing them and equipping them to know how to live when he's not going to be there. He's going to lead them by his spirit, by the permanent abiding presence of the Holy Spirit he would send. They were going to have to live by faith where they had lived by sight. John sets the scene with a remarkable insight of what Jesus knew and what Jesus did. That's in verse 1. Look back at chapter 13, verse 1. Now, before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. What did Jesus know? He knew that his hour had come. This was no accident. He walked straight up the hill from Jericho to Jerusalem with a deliberate, intentional fortitude. And he knew exactly what was awaiting him. Suffering and crucifixion there in Jerusalem at the hands of the high priests and the Romans. His hour had come. He was going to willingly lay down his life for the salvation of sinners. That's what he knew. What did he do? Well, the text tells us he loved his own, and he loved them utterly, and he loved them to the end. Even in the midst of the whole world, literally in the balance of that event of sacrificial atonement, Jesus loved these men, and he loved them all the way to the end. The loyalty of loving faithfulness, of his friendship, of his commitment, of their discipleship is unmatched. Then in the most amazing display of servant leadership, he washed the filthy feet of his bickering, arrogant, insensitive, argumentative men. Remember, while he's washing their feet, they're, they're arguing over who's going to sit where in the kingdom, who's going to have the best place at the table. And Jesus just silently 
slips down, gets a basin, washes their feet. During the meal, he then predicts the fact that he's going to be betrayed and identifies the person who's going to be the betrayer. This is important. It's Judas. We've looked at Judas in some detail, and then hopefully this is one of the last times we'll have to deal with this rascal named Judas. For three years, Judas has been with Jesus. Jesus chose Judas to be a disciple. He was chosen by the Lord himself with the absolute omniscient knowledge of what he was going to do to him. For three years, Judas had seen miracles. For three years, heard the sermons. For three years, he'd eavesdropped on, on the conversations between the disciples and between interested followers of Christ. For three years, he'd interacted with the other disciples and talked with them and lived with them. For three years, discussed theology. And actually, he had held the money purse for three years, the most trusted of the disciples, as the one who would go and take care of their needs, give to the poor, and buy food. Back to Dante's Inferno for a moment. Judas is in the worst place of punishment besides the devil himself. Why is that? Why would Dante have this view of Judas that was so negative? Well, because those to whom much is given, much is required. Let me offer you a thought that might, might be counterintuitive. Those who are punished worse in hell are not those who have sinned the highest in a moral sense. Those who are punished worse in hell are those who've known the most truth and not responded to it. And no one qualifies any more than Judas. He constantly stands as the most frightening lesson to anyone who has ever known of the love of God in Christ and not responded in repentance and faith and love and worship. His exposure to the truth did not bring salvation. You can look at principles in Judas's life and they should stand as warnings to all of us. Appreciation of the truth is not the same as application of truth. I'm sure he appreciated the truth. He saw what crowds Jesus could bring. Association with Christ is not the same as relationship with Christ. There are those, there are those then and there are those now who hung around Christians, who hung around Christ but had no living, vital relationship with him. Also, being identified by others as a disciple of Jesus is not the same as being known by Jesus as a disciple yourself. There are those, according to Matthew 7, who get all the way to the judgment, not only fooling others, but fooling themselves, where he says to them, depart from me, I never knew you, after they say, Lord, Lord, didn't we, didn't we, didn't we do these things in your name? Judas should send a chill up the spine of anyone who would hear of his, his horrific demise and make us all pause and stop and consider and make sure that we really know Christ. He lived with Jesus for three years, looked like a disciple, and even as he was walking out the door, all but Peter and John looked at him as if he was going to something, do something good for Christ, to give to the poor, to give some more food for the feast. All that time with God in flesh did nothing but open Judas's heart to the devil.
So there at the table at the Last Supper, on the night before the crucifixion of our Lord, Jesus and Judas have their last private moment. Remember, we looked at this last time, verse 21. When Jesus had said this, he became troubled in spirit, testified and said, truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. And again, you have to feel the emotion and the shock of that statement. They all think Jesus is about to announce that he's the king. Who would betray Jesus? He's about to be the king. This guy can feed people. He can heal people. He can make something out of nothing. Nobody can beat this guy. This is the king of kings and obviously the Lord of lords. Who in their right mind would betray him? When Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me, that had to be a shock to their senses. The disciples began looking at one another at a loss as to know of which one he was speaking. There was one reclining on Jesus' bosom. This is John one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. So Simon Peter gestured to him. Hey, John said to him, tell us, who is it of he, who's he speaking about? John, you're closest. Whisper in Jesus' ear. Find out the one. No more cryptic stuff. Who is it? So John, leaning back on Jesus' bosom, said to him, Lord, who is it? Then Jesus answered, that is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. Right after that, he had dipped the morsel, he took it and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. After the morsel, Satan then entered into him. Therefore, Jesus said to him, and this is that private moment. He looks at Judas. He says, what you do, hurry up. What you're doing, do it quickly. Now, no one of those reclining at the table knew for what purpose he said this to him. This lets us know that Peter and John and Jesus were having a conversation that was private. If everyone had known what was being said, they wouldn't have been surprised by this. They would have understood what was going on. For some were supposing that because Judas had the money box that Jesus was saying to him, buy the things we have need of for the feast or else that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel, Judas went out immediately. And John adds, and it was night. Jesus now has 11 faithful men, and the one traitor is out of the room. He's going to turn his attention to these 11 men and begin to prepare himself and them to deal with the sufferings and the crucifixion that was quickly approaching. One of the ways we can look at this is the Lord kind of metaphorically is putting on his final clothes for execution. But these aren't real grave clothes. These are metaphorical clothes. The clothes he's going to don himself with for the suffering and the crucifixion as a metaphor are are called glory. He's going to put on glory to get ready for the suffering and for this execution. The word glory, uh, in one of two forms, glorify or glorified, is used five times in verses 31 and 32. Five times in two verses. Glorify, glorify. And as Judas leaves to go report Jesus to the authorities, to go rat him out, the hourglass literally turns over. The stopwatch begins. The train pulls out of the station. All the moving parts begin to work together in God's providence that will soon stretch out the Son of Man's arms on an executioner's cross. It has begun, and Jesus knows it. 
Once Judas left the room, you can almost feel exactly what John says, literally, physically, and metaphorically, in verse 30. And it was night. Treachery had begun. And in the most unexpected display, the curtain is pulled back to reveal God's glory in Christ. He reveals Christ's eternal, manifest, amazing glory in suffering, through suffering, because of suffering, in the midst of suffering. These two verses were the launching point for that display, and in them we're going to find the time for Christ's glorification, the means of Christ's glorification, and the point of Christ's glorification. Let's look at those together. The first is the time for Christ's glorification, the time. Well, we find this in the very first part of verse 31. The time for Christ's glorification is really contained in the simple word, now. The context and the timing of the glorification of Jesus is contained in that simple word, now. Verse 31, therefore, what is the therefore, therefore? Well, it marks that it was night and that Judas had just left the room. Because of that, in light of that, as a consequence of that, when, Jesus, when Judas had gone out, Jesus said. Jesus says something specifically related to the fact that Judas was now not in the room. Have you ever been in the position of wanting to talk to somebody, of needing to talk to someone, of having a conversation you need to share with, with someone that, that has some sensitive information? But there's another person in the room, another person standing nearby, who, who doesn't need to hear what you're saying. So you, you, you can't really have that conversation you want to have. You find yourself editing. You find yourself holding back. You find yourself limiting the contents of your, of your discussion, of your conversation. This is what's happening here in the upper room. What happens before this moment and what happens after this moment is significant. Before this moment, Jesus, he washed the disciples' feet, and there is no footnote in the text that says, except for Judas. He loved his own to the end, even expressing love to Judas. Judas was served some food by Jesus, some bread that would have been dipped in a sauce. That was a signal that he gave to John and to Peter that Judas was the traitor. And then he gets up and leaves. Now, just a, there, there are a few remarkable things about this, this, this narrative that I think we need to observe. First off is John and Peter don't, don't make any, any problem of this. They, they don't make any big deal of this. We're going to find out in the next few verses why, and that's because Jesus gets them wonderfully distracted by telling them that he's about to die. That Judas is the betrayer. He's going to go betray me. He gets up and leaves, and, and they just kind of let it go which again hints at the control Jesus has over this setting and over this room. Now that Judas is gone, Jesus speaks to the 11 faithful men and it has a different tone, it has a different urgency, a different care, and a different intimacy. I can't help but think how easy it would have been for Jesus to have prevented this whole thing. He knew it was going to happen. He predicted it was going to happen with great accuracy, he could have stopped Judas. And if he didn't want to, by some miraculous or supernatural means, all he had to do was take 
take Peter and Judas and put them in the back alley. Don't you think Peter could have taken Judas? I just think of Peter in just a few hours is going to take a swipe at Malthus's neck. He's going to try to kill a Roman centurion. Malthus is going to duck. He's only going to get his ear. Jesus is going to fix that too. I, I just Peter, Peter was a fighter. And I just had to think that unless Jesus was in absolute control, I think Peter would have taken Judas downstairs into the back alley and, as we say, out to the woodshed. He could have openly exposed Judas and said, guys, stop him. Eleven on one, those were good odds. He didn't do anything to stop it. Not only does he not prevent Judas, remember what he says? He dispatches him quickly with urgency. What you do, Judas, go do it. Go do it quickly. He doesn't steer around the hurricane. He sails right into the full fury and teeth of the storm. He knows what's about to happen and does nothing to prevent it. This was a man who, who was supernatural. This is a man who was... God in flesh. This is the man who created the world. This is a man who fashioned Judas in his mother's womb, according to Psalm 139. This was a man who had the power of life and death, the keys to heaven and hell. He could have dropped Judas dead on the spot with a heart attack. He does nothing to prevent it. The Greek text is emphatic here. It says the word noon, it's now, which means just now, right then. John is making the point that this is a significant marker in the narrative. As we move through these next four chapters, I want you to keep something in, in, in constant mind as, as we see what Jesus is teaching and how he's teaching and the calmness of his teaching. He dismisses Judas to go and turn him in for trial, beating, scourging, and execution. And the Savior knows that Judas is... Really churning up all of the animosity toward Jesus while he's having this discussion with the other 11. He's turning on the tractor beam for the cross, the generator that's going to pull him for Calvary. Still, the composure of the Lord to calmly teach, instruct, patiently shepherd, to nurture, to prepare the disciples for his death is remarkable. If you knew you had just been turned over for execution, wouldn't you have some observable evidences of anxiety? Not Jesus. He sets it in motion, he predicts it, he sends them off, and then he turns to his 11 men and he continues to love them to the end. And the way he loved them is the way he loves us as well. To begin with, the instruction that Christ is going to announce is his glorification. He would not begin that explanation, though, with a traitor in the room. Why would he tell Judas, the Son of Man is about to be glorified? How is he going to be glorified? Through suffering and the cross. Why would he tell Judas, what you're about to do is going to glorify me? He wanted Judas out of the room before he has this conversation. So from this point in the, in the next four and a half chapters, the, this is hard to talk about. The glorification of Jesus, or do we, do we call it the re the re-glorification of Jesus is revealed. You say, why is that attention? Look over to John chapter 17, and we're going to have to bounce back and forth between this text and ours this morning because it's so related. This is the um, final prayer after the 
discourse that Jesus gives his disciples, and he prays. Listen to the heart of his prayer, though, in these first five verses. Jesus spoke these things, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son. We'll come back to that. That your Son may glorify you, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that all to whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they know, may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you sent. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given for me to do. Now, Father, now stop right there. We'll come back to this when we get into the 17th chapter. The, the disciples had heard Jesus pray over and over all, all throughout the, these three years. This is the weirdest, strangest, most bizarre, otherworldly prayer I think they've ever heard Jesus utter. Can you imagine someone praying this? This is what he says. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Who, who says that? Have you ever heard anybody pray, Father, I want to be like it was back in eternity before the world was when it was just you and me? Who says that? So the question is, is Jesus praying about his glorification or his re-glorification? The answer is yes, all the above. Back to our text. Now, now, now something happens. The time is now. Judas is gone. What is he doing? He's betraying him. The wheels are turning for the crucifixion. Now that the crucifixion is, is fully on schedule, now is the Son of Man glorified. That's the time. In fact, in the next verses, uh, take on a future tense regarding glorification that will extend beyond the suffering and go actually to the resurrection and the ascension. Now begins the re-glorification of the Son of Man. That brings us, secondly, to the means of Christ's glorification, the means. How was he going to be glorified? This is interesting to me. It might not be as obvious at first reading as it is until you look at the title. Therefore, when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified. The Son of Man. This is the means by which Jesus is going to reveal his glory. It's not evident at first, but it's it's contained in that little phrase, the Son of Man. The Lord had many references to himself, but this was his favorite title. He called himself the Son of Man. If you were the Son of God, wouldn't that be your favorite title? It wasn't Jesus's. He referred to himself more as the Son of Man than any other reference. It's used over 80 times in the Gospels, 13 times in John's Gospel. In the gospel, it's not used by anyone except Jesus speaking of himself. He's the only one who calls himself the Son of Man, except for one reference. Very interestingly, in John chapter 12, verse 34, the crowd asks, Who is the Son of Man? Which was solicited by Jesus' teaching. That was his title. That's what he called himself, the Son of Man. You say, what does it mean, the Son of Man? Well, Lots of uh, trees have been killed writing articles and books about what that means. Let me just explain it very simple. He calls himself the Son of Man, and he calls himself the Son of God. Very simply, that means he's fully divine and he's fully human. 
It's remarkable to me that Jesus keeps having to call himself the Son of Man. Most of us in our day and age try to prove the deity of Christ. That's our big thing, and we should. We should hold it firm that he is God in flesh. We, we, uh, we, we argue for and debate and give an apologetic that Jesus is God. That was so obvious to the disciples, he had to keep reminding them that he was also a man. He's the Son of Man, Son of God and Son of Man, fully divine and fully human. Now, when you look at all of John's uh, discussions or uh, descriptions of Jesus calling himself, himself the Son of Man in uh, the Gospel of John, you find uh, that the bearer of this title is alone Jesus, and this is what the descriptions of the Son of Man kind of collated look like. He ascended from heaven. He speaks the language of God the Father. He's the link between heaven and earth. He fulfills the God-inspired mission of salvation. He has authority from God and functions as the only final judge. He's the bread from heaven that must be eaten. He's the only sufficient object of faith and displays glory both in and as a reward for his suffering. I think the clearest understanding of Son of Man is is found in John 3.13, where he says, No one has ascended into heaven. No one's gone to heaven. But he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man, Jesus says. John 3.13. He's saying, look, no, one can, no one's gone to heaven, at least and come back, tell you about it. But there is one who was in heaven who came down. Obviously, that would be God, but he's also titled the Son of Man. Putting those two wonderfully in tandem. But the means of his glorification is implied as the Son of Man here. It's a clear reference to his humanity. What is the reference to his humanity so important here? Because the reference to his humanity identifies him as one who is like us. Hebrews 2, Hebrews 4 say he was like us as a child of flesh, tempted as we were, yet without sin, which means he was obedient. The Son of Man means that he lived as a totally dependent, obedient human. Now, sometime when we study Christology, this is going to be a lot of fun to just spend some weeks on. I can't even get my mind around it. Jesus being God could not have sinned. However, Jesus being man was truly tempted by sin. How does that work together? There's a real good answer for that. I don't know. He was fully tempted. Text tells us in every way we were, every category, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life, fully tempted like we were but didn't sin. He was totally obedient. He fulfilled the law because he was obedient to his father. But yet he was God. When he uses the term son of man, it's in reference primarily to his obedience as a man to his heavenly father. Therefore, obedience would be the ultimate test proven through sufferings that follow this upper room discourse. Jesus willingly obeyed to the point of death. And after he goes to the garden and the men abandon him and he goes deep into the garden to pray, he's... He's abandoned by God the Father. He prays three times with no answer. Ultimately, that would climax the next day on the cross when he would say, my God, 
my God, why have you forsaken who? Me. Obedient regardless of the consequences. The means of his glorification were, were obedience. He obeyed. We see that also um, bouncing back and forth in John 17. He, he says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work which you have given for me to do. How, did he, how, did he, how was he glorified on the earth? By obedience. Which leads to the climax of these two verses. Number three, the point of Christ's glorification. The point of Christ's glorification. Why, why, why be glorified? What does this mean? It says in, in, at the end of verse 31, and God is glorified in him. In other words, his suffering is proof of his deity. To look intently into what happens from this point to tomorrow afternoon when he's crucified, if you look with the eye of faith, there's no way you can see that this is anything but God in the flesh. God is glorified in him, manifest, brilliance. Now, the word glorified has two dimensions. We've talked about this before. Very important to keep in, in, uh, in mind here. The Old Testament word is kavo. That means substance, heavy, gravitas. The New Testament word is doxa. And all of these five references to, to um, glory in these two verses use the word doxa in some form. We get doxology from that, giving glory to God. Doxa means bright light, brilliant light. The sun had ultimate glory. There was nothing brighter than the sun. That was the measure. And so when Jesus is seen by Paul in Acts chapter 9 on the road to Damascus, do you understand? It's the middle of the day, it says. And he says, Jesus, I saw this light that was Jesus, and it was brighter than the the sun. And it was the middle of the day. Can you imagine looking up at the sun? You can't even look at it for more than a second or two without turning away. And then he looks at this thing that's even brighter, and you wonder why he had scales on his eyes. God is glorified. He's seen to be great and gravitas. He's seen to be brilliant and bright. And if God is glorified in Jesus, in him, God will also, future tense, glorify him in himself, and will glorify him immediately. Now, so much of this is going to be picked up when we get to John chapter 17. But let's look at it as, as quickly as we can. At first reading, it sounds like a lot of doublespeak, right? But the shift in the present tense and the future tense gives us a clue as to what the Lord means. First, we have to ask the question, what is this glory? The glory is his godness, his brilliance, his true identity. Most theologians say that the theme of all the scripture is the glory of God. And nowhere is it seen more than in here. The revelation of his brilliance, his magnificence, and his majesty. Now, there's two dimensions of this glory you have to remember. Um, you know one of them very well. You're, you're welcome to turn to, John, to Matthew 17 if you want to. Otherwise, you can just listen. After the great confession of Peter that Christ is... Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Uh, six days after that, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, his brother, led them up on a high mountain by themselves. <laughs> and he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. I just... 
just pause there for a second. I, I just try to put myself in their sandals for a second. That, the overwhelming sensory data that's coming in. Jesus, the Greek says he transformed, means he, he peels back his flesh and shows them his glory. It had to be bright, it had to be like the sun, it had to be great and gravitas on their, on their souls. It was overwhelming. And if that wasn't enough, they look over and there's Moses and Elijah. Now my question is, how do they know it was Moses and Elijah? Were there name tags? What was going on there? Somehow, God just let them know this is Moses and Elijah. While he was speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them. By the way, clouds aren't usually bright. Clouds usually guard the sun. They're not, they don't have a source of light. A bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. You know, we could stop right there for about six years and talk about listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground and were terrified. Sounds like Saul in Acts 9. And Jesus came to them. He touched them. He said, get up. Don't be afraid. Lifting up their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. There's one aspect of Christ's glory that's just bright, it's overwhelming. You see John, I mean, John was laying on Jesus' bosom at the Last Supper. But you see John in the vision of Jesus in Revelation 1 falling on his face as a dead man. Why? Because of his glory. And in that passage in Revelation 1, John says he was brighter than the sun. So there is this dimension that is bright and overshadowing. There's no way to miss this glory. Peter references this account, by the way, of being up on the mountain in 2 Peter 1, 16 and 17. and says, they beheld his glory. They saw his glory. That doxa, that kavod. But is this what Jesus is saying in John 13? He's not. There's another dimension. He says, now is the Son of Man glorified. And no one fell on their face as a dead man. No one described him as being brighter than the sun. Well, what, what is this about? How is he presently glorified? Look at the, at the end, by the way, of verse 32. I will glorify him immediately. In what way is God glorifying Jesus in this moment? Judas is left. The disciples are, are still in the upper room. How is Jesus being instantly, immediately glorified? If not by bright light and overwhelming gravitas. Now, this is something even more significant and more majestic. Look at these verbs again. God is glorified in him. God will also, future tense, glorify him in himself. This is reference to the resurrection and the ascension. There will be a day that Jesus prays for in John 17, please restore to me that glory. That's going to happen. That's coming. But there's another side of the glory which happens here. As Jesus adorns himself for the cross, he puts on his glory, and the glory that he puts on as the Son of Man is his human obedience to his divine Father. This demonstration of glory was not what they expected. This was out of their category of experience. This was not like what happened on the Mount of Transfiguration. It's not the glorification that takes place in Revelation 1. This is not going to be 
anything that they're familiar with. Now, they had no doubt heard Jesus talk about glory in the past, the glory of heaven. They're going to hear him pray about the glory of uh, heaven in John 17 in just an hour or so. How do we understand this? So unexpected. Well, last year I, I was, um, had an opportunity to visit one of our missionaries that I, I know, um, one of Grace Church's missionaries, I should say, and um, spent a week with him teaching a, a class and a conference. During that time, we had an open afternoon, and I went with his name, is Christian. I went with Christian to an open-air market, a French market, and one of the booths he, he took me to, there was a booth for every kind of food, every kind of craft you can imagine. One of the booths he, he took me to contained a lesson that I'm, I'm never, ever, ever, ever going to forget. There in the open air with no refrigeration and no packaging were stacks of cheese rounds. And I mean blocks of cheese. I mean blocks of cheese, rounds of cheese that, that easily would have weighed 30 or 40 pounds. These were massive hunks of cheese. And there were dozens of them, different kinds, different colors. My friend Christian got really excited during this time. This is amazing. We're going to get some good cheese, some good French cheese. Now, I'm from America. I like refrigeration. It's a good thing. Mom taught me when I was very young what curdled milk looks like, what rotten stuff smells like. I, I admit that most of those rounds of cheese looked like something that had been left under one of my son's bed for a few years. But my friend insisted that I try what he called his favorite cheese. I'll never forget what he said. Try this. Don't smell it, just taste it. Now, that didn't work because as soon as they, they sliced this cheese, I, I smelled it. It was, uh, it was obvious. I think everyone for three blocks could smell what they cut there. It was awful. It was just, it, it just it's, I think it's still in my nose. Not wanting to quell his excitement, though, I took a small piece and I forced it in my mouth. Here's the lesson. It was amazing. It looked rotten. It had blue on the top on the outside of it. It looked hideous. It looked awful. And I've never tasted a better piece of cheese in my life. It was smooth and sharp and creamy and flavorful all at the same time. Now, I am not here this morning to, to compare Christ's suffering to rotten cheese. But there is a principle that applies. What looked awful? What had the aroma of death? What had, to the casual observer, a terrible stigma and aroma actually had a beautiful part? Another dimension that you didn't see at first, couldn't taste at first. What looked awful to the casual observer at the cross was actually a demonstration of Christ's glory. 
His death was magnificent glory on display. Now in the coming. Over the next few weeks, you're going to hear and sing Hark the Herald Angels Sing. I love that song. Such rich theology in it. That has to make it in our, our cycle, Bob, please. That one little statement, mild he lays what? His glory by. And he did that at the cradle. When he came into the world, he laid his glory aside, that which was observable. Now, he gave a, a peak of it on the Mount of Transfiguration. He gave a peak. But mild he laid his glory by. And it was off for 33 years. Judas leaves the room and the reversal begins. Now he puts his glory back on. And you're going to see that dimension of his glory that's bright and gravitas. You're going to see that in the book of Revelation. You're going to see that in the ascension. You're going to sense that when you study the, the person of Christ. But there is a dimension, an aspect of his glory that's, that's awful, that's heinous, that's cruel, that's unkind, that's unfathomable, that melts the senses of any human who looks at a man who did not deserve what Jesus received. But that is when he puts his glory back on. Now, as Judas goes to betray him, as the cross gears begin to roll, now immediately God glorifies Christ. In his birth, he laid his glory by in his death, in his death, in his sufferings, he puts it back on. A true believer is one who sees Christ's glory in the cross. The one who says he knows him and doesn't really know Christ is the one who looks at the cross as just some facts in history, just some sentimental story that your Sunday school teacher told you when you were smaller to keep you out of trouble. No. For those who know Christ, the cross is glory. It is remarkable. Philippians 2 sums it all right uh, up together, right? He didn't regard, regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a slave, crucified like a criminal. And in that was glory. How do we know that? Because for all eternity, we will sing with the angels and we'll sing with the elders in heaven. What? Worthy is the lamb who what? Who was slain. Even in eternity, the glory of that crucifixion, the horror, the awfulness of it is seen as essential to the glory of Christ. When we think of the glory of God in Christ, Let's think of that one day we'll fall on our face, seeing him brighter than a thousand suns, but let's also not forget that the greatest manifestation of his glory was during his rejection by men, by God, for the sins of those who believe. Look to the cross of the believing eye and worship his magnificent, majestic glory. 
in his sufferings. Father, I, I am humbled that my, my view of your glory is um, so skewed, seems to be so um, tilted toward the bright, the heavy, the wonderful, the amazing, the majestic. And yet in the cross, we find that which is most brilliant and that which is most awful. The unexpected nature of how amazingly tasting that cheese was shocked my expectations. The disciples' expectations are about to be shocked as they looked to your your son, looked to your son and saw his glory, not in a way that they expected, but in a way that, that paid for their sins. One day they would understand, cause us to be those who would understand because of what they taught. While your heads are still bowed, if, if you know Christ, what a great reason to worship his glory if you are unsaved, if you are one who may have been like Judas, who, who's been around Christianity and around Christ for a long time, you look like a disciple, but in your heart there's no adoration for Christ himself, no love for his glory in the cross. Let me beg you today, please, don't leave this building without speaking to someone about your soul. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look in his wonderful face, and when you do that, the things that you appreciate and love about this world will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory in the light of his grace. Lord, cause us the worship that only you can. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a presentation of Mission Road Bible Church in Prairie Village, Kansas. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com.